Series 4 was recorded in autumn 2019. The following content may contain strong language. Welcome back to the fourth series of the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights podcast with me, Simon Stevens. I sometimes think that our theatrical landscapes are defined as much by the shows we missed and deeply regret missing as they are by the shows that we've seen, having not borne actual witness to the things they grow and develop in our imagination to become unthinkably brilliant. Certainly this is the case in my mind with the play that brought then recent Edinburgh University graduate Steph Smith to the attention of the world. Her famously coruscating site-specific dramatisation of the raw horrors of sex trafficking, Roadkill. Audience members were taken on a bus through the edges of the various cities that the play was staged in to engage with the childlike protagonist who shared the bus with them came to a stop at the sight of her enslavement and experienced their culpability in the ongoing crime against humanity that their cities ignored. I never saw it. I very much wish I had. It lives in some way in my imagination. It was the springboard for a working life that has, over the last decade, seen Smith become one of the UK's most urgent theatre makers. Her play for the National Theatre's Connection series, 2015's Remote, was staged throughout the country. The same year saw Swallow debut at the Traverse Edinburgh as part of the festival. She made her Royal Court debut in 2016 with the chilling nightmare Human Animals directed by Hamish Pirry, a surrealist exploration of an ecology in the throes of terrifying collapse. She returned to the dystopian futures with 2017's Girl in the Machine. Staged at the Traverse Edinburgh, it charted the emotional nightmare of a species in the thrall of an untethered technology. Her radical new version of Henrik Ibsen's Doll's House, Nora, a doll's house, opened to rapturous reviews when it premiered at Glasgow's Tramway Theatre, produced by the Citizen Theatre. It will open in London at the Young Vic at the start of 2020. In 2019, her most recent play for the Traverse, Enough, became the fastest selling play in that theatre's history. As well as writing for film and television, she's written for public art installations, taking part in Edinburgh's Love Letters to Europe in January 2019, and written songs for the Song Project for the mighty Dutch singer Venda. On her website, she describes herself as Scottish, feminist, restless. She presents the words in that order. All three characteristics clearly underpin her work. It's her concluding choice, her restlessness, that sings through them most clearly. She is restless, it strikes me, not just in the face of her world's deep-grained political and economic injustices of the highest order, but also in the capacity for conventional theatre forms to properly explore those injustices. It is this restlessness that has driven and defined one of the most compelling theatrical biographies of the decade. Steph Smith, welcome to the Royal Court. Thanks. Can you just say that introduction every time I enter a room? <laughs> really lovely, thanks. It's such a real pleasure. It was such a pleasure to write it. Oh. And such a kind of remarkable uh, work in life you've had in this decade. Mm. It's really fascinating. Yeah, very eclectic. 
Yeah, and I, I will talk about the eclecticism, but you know the question we need to start off with. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> this is our fourth series now. People are coming in and they're familiar with it. And they, you know, one of our guests has prepared quite a lengthy answer to this first question, which is when was the first time you ever went to the theatre? So the first time I went to the theatre, um, it's one of two things, and I can't remember which came first. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be a Christmas pantomime at the Sterling McRobert. Oh. Um, which, Do you remember which one it was? No, which, I don't oh. remember which one it was. I want to say Cinderella, but... One, you just want to say Cinderella? I just want to say Cinderella. <laughs> something with a damsel in distress, with questionable gender politics. Um, but lovely lighting, I'm sure. Uh, um, so it was either that, or the sort of piece of theatre that sticks most in my mind as an early experience was actually a theatre company that came into my primary school. And they um, did a sort of form theatre version of a Scottish fable. Um, And it, I just remember being enraptured by it, by it, and enjoying the liveness of it and the joy of it. And it was so playful and fun. And I'd just never seen anything like it. And I think that really pings out in my memory. It must have been about mm, maybe seven or eight. Oh, beautiful thing. Yeah. The um, were you? Uh, I don't know anything at all about Sterling. I've never been there. Why I would don't. You? No, but I want. I want you to paint a picture with words. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What's Sterling like? What's it like? What kind of place is well, it? Well, I didn't actually grow up in Sterling. Sterling was the closest local town. I think it's not a city. It's a town. Okay. Um. So I grew up in a place called Aberfoyle, which has the population of a thousand people. Oh, wow. But I actually grew up in a hamlet outside of Aberfoyle, which has the population of 20 people. So very small place indeed. Um, And it's in an area called the Trossachs. So Loch Lomond is in the middle of that. You know, if you imagine the countryside in Scotland is exactly that. It's sort of big hills and mountains, beautiful lochs, forests, pine trees. Um, A beautiful place to grow up. Yeah. Um, less so when you're a teenager. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and Stirling itself is, um, it's funny, it's sort of been shape-shifting recently. When I was there, it felt massive because I grew up somewhere so rural. Yeah. Um, there were but, more than 20 people there. Yeah, exactly, indeed. It was rather overwhelming. <laughs> um, but no, it's um, a very typical sort of... Uh, nondescript town right. um, with the exception that it has a beautiful castle at the centre of it. Right, right, right. <laughs> the uh, And the primary school that you were at that this theatre company went to was that was was that in Stirling? Was that was... No, that was in Aberfoyle. Okay. So there, there were 60 pupils at that school. The whole school? The whole school. Oh, that's 20, a 10 really... kids in my class. I love the idea of being in that touring company going into that school. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I didn't. It wasn't until I met people when I went to university that I realised how odd it was to go to such a small school because obviously <laughs> that's everyone I knew went to schools that size. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was that. I really remember that, and I remember another piece of theatre that came to my high school, which was a form piece of theatre about it was trying to do interventions about alcoholism and simultaneously road safety. So. <laughs> We learnt a lot of life lessons. Um, I mean, on occasion, the two do intersect. Indeed. Indeed. Quite, quite pressing occasions. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, we've really got to get to the pub. Uh, yeah, exactly, but let's not drive. Um, but um, And because I didn't actually go to the theatre much as a kid, because 
right. access wise yeah. the closest theatre was the Mick Robert in Stirling yeah. which was a 35 minute drive right. yeah. and it was very much a drive there was no public transport there from yeah. where I lived so um, you know prior to going to university you know I can probably count on two hands the amount of pieces of theatre I saw sure. actually um, where did you kind of explore your imaginary world then? Where was your imagination? Were you a reader or were you watching movies or music or or just going for idyllic long walks in the Scottish lochs? Yeah, well, all of that, actually. Um, I mean, as a kid, I used to play massive imaginary games, that, you know, when I was really little. Oh, um, I have a much older sister and yeah. she and I was never cool enough for her, which is fair enough. What, you know, what 12-year-old wants to hang out with her six-year-old kid sister? Oh. Um and I used, so I used to play big imaginary games, which is sort of really where I harboured a love of sort of escaping into myself. Yeah. Um, to occupy the time, because there was, you know, there was literally nothing to do except go and swim in a loch or go a walk up the forest. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's what we would do. We'd go a walk up the forest. Wow. Um, and latterly as a teenager, you know, my big creative input was music was a massive thing for me graphic novels and also, as, a, as a listener of music or, yeah. or a musician well no i mean definitely a listener i had a guitar <laughs> but uh, right. didn't play it just what kind of dust. stuff you listen to um all sorts of different stuff my yeah. uh my folks i now see have really good taste in music i don't think i felt it at the time <laughs> um big bob dylan fans fleetwood right. mac Joni mitchell right great um and so I listened to some of that sort of by proxy, you know, mm -hmm. Cream, Pink Floyd as well. Mm. Um, and I had like I had quite an eclectic mix of taste in music. Everything from like I was absolutely in love with hip hop with Tupac and Nas, Great. Um, which as Great. like a middle class rural kid in Scotland, white kid in Scotland, <laughs> unexpected. Um, but I love the poetry of it, yeah. and I just again it was so it was such a juxtaposition of my life. I sort yeah. of found it fascinating. Um, and taking you into an entirely different totally world, different both worlds, of those yeah. artists, yeah. Um, and then also, you know, I really loved, um, I remember the first time I listened to Annie DeFranco, who's right. um, a sort of, who's a political folk singer from yeah. New York, yeah. um, sort of a seminal feminist musician, really. Mm. And I remember the first time I heard her lyrics and she was angry and articulate and funny and, mm. you know, she used the word cunt in a song and I remember I was like, whoa. <laughs> Whoa, dude! Um, and she sang about abortion, and she sang about you know um, things that felt very uh, that were difficult. But she sang it in a way that it felt truthful. Um, and then, sort of the mm. final subsect of people who I loved listening to, which is like couldn't be further from you know Tupac, mm. um, was I really loved things that were camp and queer. So right. Cindy Lauper, Cher, right. Blondie, right. um, these sort of women who yeah. were not like any of the women I knew in my life, and that's right. not to say the women in my life weren't fabulous, but yeah. <laughs> they certainly weren't Cher. <laughs> um, <laughs> spoiler. <laughs> um, and, but I loved the strength of them and the gutsiness of them, mm. and they were queer before I knew what right. queer meant, right. and I love, I've always loved camp. Mm. Um, and I, they were just so specifically themselves. And I think right. as a young woman growing up, right. looking at that going, oh, I want some of what they're having. <laughs> <laughs> and um, at, 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 this, at your high school especially, mm. uh, w w was that a space in which you could kind of like be unapologetic about that kind of cultural exploration? What kind no. of... <laughs> what teenager gets to do that? I just wanted I to be know. like everybody else. I know, I know, um, I know. 
Yeah, I think, no, I, looking back, um, I think I had a lot of guts as a teenager in that sense, in that I was sort of, I never really bent a taste of the people around right. me. Um, Music-wise, I was yeah. sort of the odd one out. Yeah. And in, but I was also in a group of people who were the odd ones out. Mm. We all sort of found they're each the other. They're the only ones worth knowing. Yeah. They're the, <laughs> they're the ones who are going to be good adults, let's face exactly. it. Exactly, exactly. Um, and so, and yeah, and I think, you know, through my teenagers, but I think this is also loads of teenagers do this I wrestled with desperately wanting to fit in but also desperate to find out who the hell I was right. and you know and that tussle back and forth I think you know lasted probably until my early 20s really yeah um, yeah mm. when did you start writing as part of that t- or was it maybe it wasn't part of that tussle I'm imposing that as part of this yeah, no. it wasn't <laughs> it was just like a fucking um, fun thing to do yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> um, I always wrote um, yeah. always wrote since I can remember. I remember right. there was one year when I was about 12, I wrote a poem a day in a oh, notebook wow. um, just because I wanted to see if I could do it. And I've still got them all. I mean, Have they're, you? Yeah, they're terrible. But, um, That's good, right? You've got to write terrible poems when you're 12. I mean, to do it in 12 is great. Um, and so I, I always wrote on yeah. some level. I didn't write plays until I got to university. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I might have written a monologue or something that, looked like a monologue yeah but um yeah I, I always wrote creatively I loved it mm-hmm. um I don't think I was particularly special or you know gifted at it but I found it um a, a, a useful outlet and also an enjoyable thing to do again it felt like you know those worlds that I created when I was a kid I just put them on paper in my teenage years I wonder I, I've been thinking about that you know, talking to a lot of people for mm. this series, people who have used the process of writing as a space in which they just find themselves happy. Yeah. Like, for various different reasons, and different people in different contexts, it's like the one thing where they're happy is just mm. when they're uh, creating a world symbolically. Yeah. I think there's really something in that. Totally. Uh, I, I think I'm at... Um, oh, I was going to say something. I don't know if it's true. I was going to say I think I'm at my sort of... Most I write my most interesting work when I'm happy doing it, but actually I think it's less about happiness and more about hunger. So I feel mm. like I'm satisfying something in me by writing. Yeah, yeah. Mm. The um, where did you go to university? I went to Queen Margaret in Edinburgh, so not fancy Edinburgh. But it's, Edinburgh. it's good, Sorry, Queen, Queen Margaret, Margaret, though, right? It's not. Isn't it more of an art school kind of? No, it's Queen Margaret's funny. While I was there, they used to have a fabulous. Um, theatre space called the Gateway, which right. um, once I got into university, they actually closed. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know they knew I was coming. <laughs> um, but uh, and so I spent my first two years in Castorfin, the Castorfin campus, oh, which is just out of town, and then they opened up a new theatre space in Musselburgh, which is the other side of town. I used to live in Edinburgh. Did you? Um, yes, I did. Um, uh, Didn't know that. Yeah, and I was a DJ DJ in a mobile disco company. And did uh, two gigs in Castorfin. I knew I knew your face. (laughs) 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 Including one 21st birthday party in which uh, this girl invited 100 people and 21 came. And they were all her fr- family, none of her friends. They were oh, only no. her family were there. Oh, that's nightmarish. <laughs> I've got very fond memories of Castorfin. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, what were you doing at What were you doing at Queen, uh, Queen Margaret's? Um, it was a course called Drama and Theatre Arts. Right. And when I first went, 
um, the final two years you specialised in something. Yeah. The first two years you sort of learnt everything about theatre, you know, you learnt how to um, cue a show, you learnt how to do a lighting oh, rig, you learnt how great. to... Um, great course. Yeah, amazing. And actually, I, I think even as a playwright, it set me up in really good stead yeah. to know what the fuck everyone does in a theatre. So you decided by then that you wanted to work in theatre? Yeah, well... You or you want... You wanted to at least spend three years thinking about it. Yeah, this, well, four yeah. years, actually, yeah, Scotland. Right. Yeah, of course. Um, and, yeah, I actually went in thinking that I wanted to do community theatre. Right. Um, because I went to an amazing youth theatre, which I talk about a lot, actually, when people ask me about my sort of formative years in theatre, because yeah. youth theatre was absolutely formative. As an actor? Well... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we did acting in that, but yeah. it was, again, it was a group of weirdos who all Where found each it? other. Where was it? Where was the... It was at McRobert in Stirling. Right. Um, yeah. Which, I mean, again, it, that was the only theatre in spitting distance until mm. you went into Glasgow or Edinburgh, which were both more than an hour's drive away. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, f I found people who I'm still in touch with mm. there. And mm. um, some of whom work in theatre, actually. Yeah. And uh, I th my sort of knowledge of theatre at that point was... Minuscule. I'd read three plays, Bold Girls by Rona Munro, um, Romeo and Juliet and Hamlet. I don't remember the name of the writer of those. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I thought, well, you've got a job in theatre. Um, the woman, Mary, who ran the group, who are, yeah. who's an ama amazing woman. What's her family name? Uh, Binny. She's incredible. Yeah. Um, she says that I have to stop name checking her and stuff. But I said you're so no, important. No, no, to... <laughs> I'll name check yeah. her. Mary <laughs> okay. Binney. Yeah. Really, yeah, really important uh, one. <laughs> um, but um, she. Uh, yeah, I saw what she did and I thought, oh, I want to do that. That's how you work. That's a job in theatre, I understand. Because it's sort of like being a teacher, but it's yeah. not quite that. Yeah. And so I went and I went and applied to this course thinking that I would specialise in community theatre to do mm. what I'd seen. Um, and it's then when I started to realise, you know, if, it's very hard to know what you can be if you don't see it. Of course it is. Which sort of comes later on in my work about representation. Yeah. But um, but when I was studying, um, the most um, practical specialism was actually the directing specialism. So the so for my final two years, I actually trained to be a director. Right. Um, thinking that I wanted to be a director. Yeah. Yeah. So when did you synthesise your... Uh, Kind of in a in a literary impulse mm. to write one poem a day for a year, hmm. with your kind of um, pragmatic commitment to making theatre. When did you write your first attempt at writing a first play? My first attempt was at the end of first year of uni, and a friend of mine, me and a friend, put on a show at the Edinburgh Festival for um, absolutely no money and like literally a hotel room, um, that they turned into a theatre, um, in the Grass Market, and that was the first play I ever wrote. What was um, it? What was it? It was called The Heart is Nicotine. Don't Good look it title. Up. Oh, thank you. You can have it. You can <laughs> have it, Simon. Yeah, I definitely yeah. will. Yeah, I would like a royalty. One, though. one of the subplots of this series <laughs> is I've just been gathering titles for new plays. Oh, and great. <laughs> I'll definitely have that one. That's um, really good. And uh, so I, that was the first play I ever wrote. Um, and Do you remember anything about it? Yeah, I remember everything about it. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> what was it about? It was about. What was it about? It was about a mother. A Sorry, and it was about a father and a daughter mm. who fell out, and the daughter sort of runs away and ends up befriending a sex worker. Mm -hmm. 
who's in sort of an abusive relationship. I mean, it's not a good play. It's not a good That's play. That's right. I don't think... <laughs> <laughs> no, don't. Uh, nobody will be looking to revive that anytime soon. But it's not necessarily about that so much as it's interesting in the things which we explore unconsciously when we're just kicking off. Yeah. I always think that... I remember Ali McDowell asked me one time, I did a group with him, he said, what have the very first play you've ever wrote mm. and the very most recent play you've written what elements have they got in common? Oh, yeah. I thought it was a brilliant question. That's really interesting. Yeah. Maybe we'll come to that when we come to the end of your working yeah. life. Like, <laughs> Is that soon? <laughs> no. no, no <laughs> Shit. It's a date. Okay, great. <laughs> Phew. I've got a tax bill. <laughs> um, so, what did you, can I ask, did you know that it was going to be performed in a hotel room? Was it written for a hotel room? No, no, I right. wasn't that clever. The, ho- the hotel room was pretending to be a theatre. Yes, it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't an early exploration of site-specific theatre. No, no, it was just a hotel room <laughs> right. that was pretending to be a theatre. And so, why did you carry on writing? Um, because I needed to. Yeah. I think I write because I need to, most of the time, rather than I want to. It's a way of understanding the world and putting it on paper, um, and I feel. Um, restless if I haven't written in a long time and that's not necessarily like a commission or for a play mm. um, it's like a sort of something in me finds a sort of sense of peace by writing Yeah, I don't know if I can do a day without writing something mm. weekends like I'm kinder to myself on weekends now mm. and I don't like write every day but I could just, if it's just like 10 minutes yeah yeah. If I don't, I get like I used to get when I first started quitting smoking. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Just kind of that and, and do you write it down always? Because I think I'm writing in my head all the time, but I don't necessarily write it no, down. No, I've got, I've started using notebooks. Oh, yeah. And I'll, even if I don't do nothing other than 10 minutes automatic writing, I'll do 10 minutes automatic writing every day. Wow. I do it, I do start doing something that I developed with Chris Good. Or developed after conversation with Chris Good, where I'll do four minutes with sent with things I remember, mm. four minutes on things I notice, and then four minutes on things I either imagine or intend to do in the future. Wow, it's quite fun. You can have yeah. that. You can have that for free. Great, <laughs> it takes thanks. Twelve minutes, and you've you too, listener. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so was the experience of making that play in the hotel room yeah. uh, rewarding, enjoyable? Yeah, I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. It gave me. You know, it gave me a taste for the adrenaline rush of putting yeah. on a show, and we had to go in every day and set it up, and on, you know, do the get out every day, and I mean, you're directing and producing yeah, and everything, yeah, the whole thing, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I didn't, well, I don't know if we had a producer, but there was somebody else managing the money. Right. Okay. Cool. But I, I certainly felt the adrenaline rush of it, and yeah. also the sense of community. I think that's one thing I love about theatre is the sense of everybody working together for a common aim yeah. um, and also I'm a firm but I think you know making theatre for me is a political act it's a group of people in a room talking about an idea yeah. and I think it doesn't get more political than that yeah absolutely um, and I love that when you finished uh, at Queen Margaret oh mm. can I go back and mm. ask you actually coming from this hamlet mm. outside this village outside a town rather than a city. Yeah. What did your family and your friends make of your impulse to make theatre and write a poem a day? Were you supported? Yeah. Um, well, I don't think I ever told anyone that I wrote a poem a day. That was right. just like a little private... Is that the first time you've ever told anybody now? 
Might be. Yeah. Might be. Um, I'm just going to lie and say it is, if it isn't. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I know. I think it is. Um, but what did you? What did your the the people who loved you kind of like? Yeah. Well, I don't come from a creative family at all. No, me um, neither. And no, the person who was the most creative was my granny on my mum's side, and I never met her. Mm. Um, but she was a singer. She used to sing in a thing called the Mod, which is a um, competition held in Gaelic, and she was a singer. And um, you won medals for either storytelling or singing, or um, there were also these all sorts of disciplines. It's like an Eisteddfod, the Welsh Eisteddfod. Oh, similar I don't kind know. Is it similar? Yeah, yeah. It's like a community performance thing. Yeah, and yeah. you sort of, and so my granny sang in that, um, and that's sort of the closest creative relative. Yeah. Um, so were they baffled or kind of like delighted or? I think they were probably a bit baffled, but they hid it. Because um, <laughs> a lot of parents don't yeah. find their bafflement a yeah, lot. Yeah, I think they were really pleased I was going to university. I Great. think they were pleased that I'd found something I loved. Yeah. Um, I also think, you know, the community theatre aspect, they could see that, they understood that, what that meant to, you know, run a youth theatre group and that was yeah. a job. And yeah. and also, you know, worst case scenario, I'd probably become a teacher, um, which I'm sure is lots and lots of people's sort of secondary thought studying yeah. theatre. Yeah. Um, and as for my friends, yeah, none of them, I don't think anybody else went and did anything in the arts, at least straight away. Um, but I went to Queen Margaret and all my other friends from high school went to Glasgow Uni. And so I sort of slightly started off on my own again, which I loved. Yeah. I remember up until that point, I was Stephanie. And when I moved into halls, um, there was another Stephanie on the same, it was like a corridor with like 12 rooms off it mm. and there was another Steph and I was like oh I'll just be Steph then huh. and ev- and so everybody before I was 18 I'm Stephanie yeah. and everyone after that I'm Steph <laughs> um, <laughs> and I really remember that moment where I was like I'm gonna be Steph and it wow. stuck that's a beautiful moment of reinvention yeah yeah, yeah and that's what it felt like it, well not reinvention it felt like I was finally being the person I was beautiful that's really nice mm. um, did they go and see did anybody from your from your Hamlet go and see your play in the hotel room? No, I don't think they did, actually. No, I think, I mean, like, I can't... I think we had, like, two people see it a day or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know who saw that play. The stuff um, I started off in the Friends, I'd get about four people a day, yeah. and normally one of them would leave. Yeah. Not, not, <laughs> not because they were shocked, but just because, yeah. like, I don't know, they... Wanted you know, to go to the pub. Football was on or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. There's some stand up on like, something. They'll even apologise to the actors. Like, <laughs> sorry, just got, I've got to go now. <laughs> <laughs> but you carried on um, writing for theatre. Yes. Was it? Was, did you leave with the sense of, this is me? I found it. Uh, after that first play, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I still thought I wanted to be a director. Right. Um, and I sort of obviously I became a playwright slightly by accident, because um, Cora Bissett, who directed roadkill yeah um the summer before i graduated she actually stayed in my spare room or i sort of i subletted my flatmate's spare room to her she was in midsummer by david gregg yeah I in the festival um in fact was yeah. pornography uh, that year the year after I, i've certainly hung out in the Travers okay. bar with cora bissett when she was doing midsummer mm. and she was a fucking oh, seawall Seawall, it? it was Seawall, yeah, that's, that's right. right, it was Seawall, yeah. Um, that was yeah. the first play of yours I saw, actually. Oh, man, yeah. Um, and uh, I, she stayed, so she stayed with me, and uh, we got on really well, and she read some of my, I don't know if she read some of my poems, or right. um, she read sort of little sketches of my writing, 
And then about a year later, um, she'd spoken to me about a project um, that she was working on to do that was site specific and she wanted to look at sex trafficking and she'd done loads of interviews and she wanted to devise a project around it. And I, you know, she'd had sort of previous conversations with the writers, um, but sort of settled on me and said, can you write us some monologues to improvise around? And I said, yeah, sure. So wrote some monologues and then she said, and then we did a week's development and it went really well, um, or at least it sort of felt very exciting and inspiring. And then mm -hmm. she said, do you want to write, do you want to have a go at sort of mapping out the whole play yeah. from things that we've devised or sort of um, use that as inspiration for a play? And I said, sure, OK. And so I think we got the script together in about six weeks. Right. Um, and I was still working a full-time job in retail at this point. What are you doing? What I are you, worked in for Lush, the bath bomb company. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> I know a lot about their products. In Edinburgh? In Glasgow. In Glasgow. Right. I moved, um, as soon as I graduated, I moved from Edinburgh to Glasgow because yeah. the rent's cheaper. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I always think people who work in retail, it's good. I think it's good artistic training. Yeah, I for think, sure. Yeah, it's really, really healthy. Well, the day after I we won the Olivier, I had to go back to Glasgow and do a nine-hour shift selling Brilliant. soap. <laughs> like I had to get, I had to get like a stupidly early plane, because some people needed soap in Glasgow. <laughs> That's so, important. It's yeah, really important. It's important. Um, I really want to hear in detail about the making of Roadkill, and mm -hmm. because I hope I, when I was reading the introduction, I thought, God, is that really insulting to have not a have not seen it? Mm -hmm. But um, so everybody was talking about it. Yeah. And talking about it with such awe and a sense of excitement that I'd love to hear. The pro a little bit about the process of making it and what what that was like for you. Sure, it was very quick. Yeah. Everything was very quick about it. Um, although it, it sat with Cora for a long time. Yeah. Um, my involvement in it was relatively short. Mm. Um, and it was very green. Like, right. I really didn't know much more than any graduate knows about theatre. Yeah. Um, and at that point, I still didn't know if I wanted to be a playwright or be a director. Mm. Um, and so I sort of. I wish I could say like I was really technical and really got into the craft of it but actually yeah. a lot of it was just feeling my way through the process yeah. and feeling my way getting a script down on paper yeah. and even the fact you know when it was at the festival and there was all this noise about it I sort of didn't know what to do with that because I had right. no context for what it meant yeah. um, you know whatever success in adverted commas means when that's your first play you don't really have a touchstone for and it can be really pernicious that as well it can be yeah, massively destabilizing totally and i really feel you know that experience for me and i also i'm aware it comes from a point of privilege having had that experience yeah. but when i hear about young writers whose first play is a mega smash and however you wish to sort of yeah describe that whether it's critically or yeah. numbers or tr it transfers yeah i sort of worry a bit for them yeah me too because i think in lots of ways it opens loads of doors but sometimes it opens doors that you're not ready for or there's yeah. the sort of everyone's watching your second play going were they a one-hit wonder or what you know and so I always feel a bit nervous when young and particularly young women I was going to say it nearly always happens it's nearly always young women yeah. rather than young men it doesn't happen in the same way for young men no they're they're definitely always allowed a second and bite of the cherry there's a really dodgy agenda under a lot of it as well yep, for sure I think it's really problematic for sure um, and so I think, you know, and I, I didn't, I, I think also the fact that I was based in Scotland rather than London, yeah. I managed to dodge some of those pitfalls. Great. But also I made a conscious decision after Roadkill to go and make small pieces of theatre in tiny studios. Um, Great. And sort of go like, oh, now I've got to learn how to be a playwright because <laughs> I've yeah. accidentally ended up being one. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, my plays after Roadkill 
were very small, imperfect little experiments, actually. Um, Like, I directed my own work and then realised I never want to do that again. Um, Or I sort of wrote a queer two-hander exploring, actually, um, sort of trans politics. And this was ten years ago, so it's sort of before there was lots of trans narratives. and. um, yeah. Where were you making those? Were you were you producing them? Mm-hmm. Or were you, yeah, yeah, I was sort of playing for money from the Arts Council. Right. Um, or maybe we would get like a couple of hundred pounds from a festival to right. sort of put on the work. So it was very... Yeah. And I, again, I'm really pleased. At the time, that felt shit. Yeah. Going, oh, I hate having to do funding applications. or, But I'm so glad I had to do that. Yeah. Because I think playwrights who haven't got that in their blood... It's yeah. still sort of a bit mysterious about how plays happen and what the finance is and what the money is. Mm. And maybe that's okay, but for me, I'm really glad that I know how much stuff costs. Mm. <laughs> I yeah. find that really useful yeah. and humbling, actually. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad that Touchwood, I might not have to do an arts application anytime soon again, but I also like to know you're going to nail it when you do yeah well I mean no probably not but at least I know at least I know I have yeah. a sense of what that is and and you have a sense of what's gone into the production of all of the plays yeah totally yeah the, um, so how long were you and in my kind of like chronology of, um, of 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 your work how long were you doing that before the uh, National Theatre that was a connections play yeah right? connections yeah. play yeah so um, three years right um, three years of like you deliberately took yourself out away in order to create like a laboratory type condition you could learn your craft in yeah I don't and you know what I don't know how conscious it was at the time like I don't yeah. think I sort of did a mission statement and went I'm going to do this yeah but there was definitely an element of self-preservation in that that's really of, really impressive of just sort of retreating and going I, I just need to learn because you could have gone the other way and just said I don't want to be a playwright I want to be a director and persisted with the direction yeah yeah, for sure. Um, I don't think I'm a very good director. I think the way I think I thought a visual storytelling style meant that I should be a director, but actually I can do that on the page, obviously. Right. That's what I learned right. um, or came to the conclusion of. But um, So yeah, I remember once I was going to approach the National Theatre of Scotland when Vicky ran it for a bit of development money on a show, yeah. and um, a friend of mine who was an established playwright went, are you sure you want that money? Because if you have their logo on your leaflet, people will judge that work differently because they'll assume huh. it's got a different level of resource or right. it's sort of been um, backed in some way and that's absolutely no comment on National Theatre Scotland, but yeah. rather what it suddenly means, how different commissions can make people look at work differently. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I sort of stayed away from all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and also partly, it's not like the phone was ringing off the hook. Like, you know, I remember yeah. after yeah. the Olivier, yeah. um, and much, much older, more experienced playwright said to me, and I won't name who they are, said to me, oh, well, you'll never have to look for work again. And I was like, oh, dude, still working a full-time retail job. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's not, it's yeah. not like, again, it's not just because you win a big award, suddenly you're like, oh, no. look at all these people approaching me about work. Yeah. It's a misconception. Um, Sorry, that was a bit tangential. No, uh, the, the thing that's interested me is... Uh, how that crystallised in your head the active decision that it was going to be the writing you're going to mm. pursue rather than you know how you decided you weren't a good enough director mm. what was it about the writing that satisfied you in a way that you were pursuing that hunger as you say mm. I think I didn't I don't particularly like being the centre of attention and right. um, so much of a director is holding a room yeah. and yeah, organising sure. a room yeah. 
and I don't really have that in my bones, yeah. that sort of yeah. capacity for that attention. Mm. Um, also, I think I, you know, what a direct, what a good director does is they translate their ideas into three dimensions, um, which is an absolute skill. Mm. And I don't think I have that skill as finely honed as what you need when you're a director. Yeah. Whereas I know I can get my idea down on a page. And then in in the, I'm fascinated by these three years. Mm. Did you find yourselves were you aware of things like? Um, themes you were returning to or uh, gestures you were returning to or ideas you were becoming more conscious of? Yeah, I think um, it's funny, I suppose also it's important to note that in the f- the second of those three years I joined a writer's group at the Royal Court that was uh-huh. run by Nick Payne um, and so every um, right. Saturday through uh, February and March, I would get the train down to London, which is four and a half hours from Glasgow, yeah. do a writer's group and then get the train back up. Um, on, s- on Saturdays, like weekend? Yeah, yeah. Wow. And, um, and it was on those train journeys that I wrote the first draft of Human Animals. Um, <laughs> <'cause> <laughs> That's such a great story. Um, and because I was exhausted and buzzing and all the things and also I was re- I wasn't seeing the work I wanted to see and so you know I think there's a Toni Morrison quote isn't it if you there's a book you want to read and it doesn't exist write the book yeah, yeah. and so I mean that's paraphrased but um the sentiment is true I always talk about Tom Hanks character in Big oh, saying yeah. exactly the same thing do you know that movie yeah I love that movie and the, and he has the the date scene uh-huh. Where the girl asks him where he has his great where he gets his great ideas for toys from. Yeah. And he says he thinks of toys that uh, he wished existed so he could play with them. Oh. And they don't exist, so he has to invent them. Yeah. I think that's what we do when we make plays. Totally. And I kind of think if that's not what you're doing, you're doing it wrong. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can I get that on a t-shirt? We should just be making the plays we wish we could see, for whatever yeah. reason. Sorry, totally. I interrupted no, no, you. No, no, no. So it's exactly you know it's the. I totally agree, mm. um, and a lot. It felt like there was a real rise of a young male voice at that point. Um, this was what 2012, 13. Yeah, or, yeah. and yeah. particularly with the solo play as well, or the solo show. Right. Um, and you know, and I don't. I, I think those voices are absolutely necessary, mm. but within a more balanced ecology. Sure. <laughs> we can't be yeah. saturated with those voices. Yeah. Yeah. Or the or that form. Mm. And if, mm. and it felt like. And I and I say felt rather than it was because yeah. that was just my perception mm. that we were being saturated with young right. male voices and solo shows. Yeah, and I was yeah. pissed off. Frankly, I was really angry, <laughs> and I was like, "Where are the women? Where are the queer women? Where yeah. are the two people talking to each other, pretending to be other people?" Like you know. Yeah, great. And I was really angry, and I remember, um, and it was while I was doing the. Um, Royal Court Writers Group, I had a meeting with Orlo Lachlan, who at that point was artistic director of the Traverse. Yes. And, uh, and I was really angry. And, uh, and I'm not at all a confrontational person, quite, mm. the, quite the opposite. Um, but, I, but I remember thinking in my mind, I'm going to tell her how angry I am. And we, um, and I, I like really psyched myself up on like the bus um, all the way to um, Edinburgh from Glasgow, um, and I sat down and she was on her. I'll never forget this. She was on her lunch break from something, and she was. I hope she doesn't mind me saying. She was having pie and chips, and I really remember <laughs> that really vividly. <laughs> I don't know. She's a classy lady, and it's not a very classy lunch. Um, but uh, and I remember I picked up my coffee, and I re- I realized my hand was shaking because I knew what I was about to say 
and I sort of took it I attempted to take a sip of the coffee and my hand was like quivering and she and she went oh how are you doing Steph and I went Orla I'm really fucking angry and I remember she put down <laughs> her cutlery and went okay what about <laughs> and um and then I just like I said where are the women where are the queer women what you know why are we trapped either within traditional forms or the solo show and I just sort of exploded but I say exploded actually it was probably very quiet and very nervous um because I'm not that cool um and I remember at the end of that conversation she said to me well then you write us the play you want to see and that was my first ever formal equity um scottish society playwrights stand you know contract commission was that for swallow yeah yeah tell yeah. us about the process of writing that the pr actual process of writing it how you channeled that really mm. compelling anger yeah. into something that had a form um i wrote a really terrible first draft yeah. of something that she read and went this isn't the play we spoke about huh. um it's great artistic direction to be able to be that confident. Yeah, yeah, yeah and it was a tricky conversation. You know, it wasn't. Yeah. She didn't want to have that conversation. I certainly didn't want to hear that conversation. Um, and she was like, "This isn't what I'm after. Like, uh, you know, this isn't doesn't quite encapsulate the conversation we had." And I remember I went home to my then partner, and I was really upset because I thought I'd fucked up. I was like, "My first commission, I fucked it already. Like, mm. she hates it. I can't do this job." And I remember um, I was just really angry, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a crier. I'm not a sort of, uh, I'm not that sort of person. But I remember, I was, I was taking out the garbage, um, or the bins. Sorry, I'm not American. <laughs> <laughs> Who was that? God. Um, I um, quite enjoyed it. Oh, <laughs> um, I was taking out the bins, and. As I took it out, it ripped, you know, in that way it sometimes yeah. does. Oh, and it fuck. ripped and it went everywhere. And oh, then I just no. remember I burst into tears and fell on, my, and like, literally, it was so dramatic. Fell to my knees on the kitchen floor. My then partner was like, are, are you all right, Steph? And I was like, <laughs> no. And I was like, no, I fucked it all up. Like, my first commission, I'm going to work in retail forever. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, but, um, and, and my then partner was like, don't worry. Like, she, you know, she clearly want you and your voice don't lose hope yeah. we got together the rubbish and then I sat down um, and started writing and I wrote the first 10 pages of Swallow and it basically remained unchanged right to production those great. first 10 pages great and it was from that sort of desperate on that howl. same night yeah 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 I literally took the bin out and then sat down and wrote the first 10 pages and I sent it to my friend Catherine um Grovesner, who's a playwright, fantastic yeah, playwright, yeah, yeah. Um, and I said, "Am I mental?" And she read, it and she was like, "No, keep writing." Oh, brilliant! Were you right? You were writing straight into dialogue. You weren't planning. You weren't making nope. notes. It was all channeled right into Absolute the dialogue. Absolute instinct. Yeah. Just sat down and wrote until I thought I got to the end of that story. Great. Yeah, and then I sent it to Orla, and then the following day I got an email just saying exciting it's <laughs> <laughs> classic or little Lachlan email <laughs> but, oh that's beautiful and how was the uh, how did the life of Swallow compare to the life of Roadkill for you because you're a different your position to the art is different in yeah, both of them right totally yeah I mean I have much more ownership over Swallow yeah because um, the nature of how 
roadkill came about i wasn't the sort of instigator of that sure. idea um so i felt much and also i was older um yeah. when swallow came along it felt the voice of it felt more mature in some ways mm. um and also you know i write every play like it's the last play i'll put into the world um and i learned that in swallow i thought if this is the one play i write yeah fine that's great i've sort of done and the same with human animals and the same with enough i thought this yeah. is the last one fine yeah because i I tried to do what I wanted to do. And I really felt that was well. But also I like, you know, it was programmed in Trav One in the, during the festival, which is sort of- It's one, a big thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I was young and it was scary and exposing yeah. and it did very well critically and, you know, yeah. it had a real response, particularly with young women. Um, and that was a lot, it's mm. overwhelming. Like people don't say that sometimes having, yeah, it's just a lot to mm. suddenly have people you know to go from it being such a private thing yeah to suddenly being in front of lots of people are you able to were you able to were you conscious of so it's three questions and you can choose any of those three you want to answer Great. uh the challenge of taking that feeling of feminist and queer anger mm-hmm. and creating form mm. that somehow articulated that anger, that queer anger, that feminist anger, were you able to think, right, if I, if I, and, and if so, how did you do it? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> um, I, I knew I didn't want to write a play which was two people by a kitchen sink talking. Yep. Um, and uh, in that way, I suppose I was looking to queer the form. Yeah. Um, and... How did and I quick, just just mm. just for a kind of like middle aged old fucker? What mm-hmm. does that? What do you what do you mean by queering the form precisely? I'd be like, genuinely excited by that. Um, well, I suppose for me it feels uh, it's about subverting the traditional narrative structures. Great. So you think of the hero's journey yes. or like you know set up conflict resolution. Yeah. Um, it's about either subverting it or inverting it yeah. or doing something different Brilliant. with it. Brilliant. It's like that's the really basic. I mean, really somebody clear. will have a PhD written on that term. Yeah, but that's but my sort of. Leavings. Not necessarily easy to use a PhD when you're making art, but actually no. that stuff you can use. True. Yeah, you do get a doctor <laughs> in your title though. That's fun. Um, <laughs> and that's conscious to you. That was conscious to you when you were making Swallow. Yeah. And 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 human animals. As and well. all of them. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. like it's a lifeblood for me. That sort of queering the form. Yeah. Um, and I feel like in some ways my forms are just getting queerer. Right. Because um, I, th- I, f- I sort of feel braver. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like weirdly, like I've got less to lose. Like, <laughs> I so, yeah. you know, yeah. and it's that if this is the last play, let it be the last play, you know, sort yeah. of feeling. That's such a glorious thing to take into the writing of every mm. play. Mm. Let this be the one. Mm. Yeah, totally. And uh, I love the energy. Some water. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I do keep hydrated. <laughs> it's, always, it's always useful. The um, how d- how did you deal with the aftermath of the impact that Swallow made in comparison to dealing with Roadkill? You probably weren't able to go and do two or three, however unintentional years. No. Of, Study the craft. How was it? No, I moved to Leeds. That's how I dealt yeah, with it. Yeah, it's a good thing to do. Yeah. So, I think <laughs> yeah. a lot of people find that that's the best yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. Just moved to Leeds. <laughs> um, no, my my then partner got a job there, so we right. relocated. And right. 
um, for about three months, I just was very still for a while. Right. Um, genuinely, like, I just sort of had to recharge. I was exhausted yeah. after the end of that festival. Yeah. Um, and I... Were you, were, you, were you still working in retail? Or were no, you... <laughs> I quit. I'd, I'd long since quit. And I, making a living from writing? Yeah. From writing and running workshops great. or teaching a bit, you know. Were you writing? Did you get TV and radio work and stuff out of Swallow nope. as well? You've, have you, you've done a bit of that though, right? Yeah, I've sort of, that's, I mean, I would say it's relatively new into my life in great, the last okay. sort of year or two. Yeah. Um, I still feel like it's um, an unknown world. Sure. Um, and I'm still definitely a playwright before anything else. Mm. Um, Me too. And yeah, <laughs> no, I can't do it. I can't do telly. I'm yeah. shit at it. Yeah, well, Radio, I quite like, but telly. Yeah, I mean, I love the media. You know, I think it's funny. I should have mentioned it when we were sort of talking about the origins. TV was a big part of my childhood. Right. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of people can be quite snooty about that, but actually, no, I'm not snooty. With... I'm just not very good at it. Yeah. No. No. no but like, <laughs> it's about yeah. access, isn't it? Yeah. So, you know, completely. for the vast majority of people, that's how the access stories is yeah. through the telly. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I do think you know if we want. Access social change you do have to engage with populist culture for sure you know and i think particularly things like pop music can yeah. change the world yeah. much more than yeah. you know small uh small plays in studio theaters or well or they can big... change the world too Simon. otherwise we wouldn't do them <laughs> just in different ways they just change their own in different ways so you you went to leeds and you were still mm -hmm. you were earning money from writing a little yes yeah uh, and was it there that you re that you ref refined or rewrote or remade human animals or was mm -hmm. that a play that existed before Swallow? yeah totally right um yep yeah, so then uh it was pro so human animals was about eight months after swallow and so i spent that time focusing on crafting human animals yeah can we uh, talk a little about nick Payne? yeah and about that group yeah was that a useful thing a daunting thing a fun thing um i loved it i really loved it it was i loved meeting um the sort of makeup of that group was about playwrights who live outside of london mm. Um, I think it was called the National Writers Group. Great. Um, I loved meeting Nick. We're like we're very very different writers, mm. um, but I think his generosity of spirit, his love of playwriting, his yeah. love of theatre is yeah. absolutely infectious. Yeah. Um, and he's one of the funniest human beings on the planet. Yeah, sometimes not intentionally so. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking. That was a joke. I just saw a, I just saw a cheap gag. Sorry, Nick. <laughs> it's the kind of thing you would have loved it. It's the kind of thing you would have gone for. Yeah, we're talking about him like he's dead. <laughs> he's very much alive and well. Shit, that's the second time I've done that. Killed off Nick Payne. No, well, I killed off you. We're talking about the end of your career, and oh. now I've killed off Nick Payne. Yeah, I would not I, want I wasn't dead. Like just sad. Thing at the moment, I don't know what. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. yeah. Nick is an inspiring yeah. teacher. Yeah, he was, and yeah. he just instilled a confidence in my work that I'd never had before. Um, and also, there's something sort of psychologically about you feel at the risk of using a crude word a bit validated when you're on one of those courses. You're like, oh, I'm, am I here by administration error or is yeah. it because you actually like my work? Yeah. Um, and it was also before Vicky got the job here. Right. So it didn't feel like, you know, I was a she, Scottish. Yeah, great. You know. Yeah. It was um, it was before her and then she took over the role and, you know, which is amazing. Mm. And she did ultimately commission human animals. Yeah. Um, and program it. What um, was the, tell me about the process of making human animals, especially I'm interested in the thinking. Yeah. Because it's such a, it feels like such a confident and cogent intellectual gesture. Mm -hmm. Where, do, like, 
where did the fucking idea come from? Because it's so startling. Um, the so the very first draft of Human Animals was ninety unconnected scenes, which were a riff on the idea of speciesism. So speciesism is a concept that we assign different rights to different species. Yeah. Um, so for example, monkeys are more important than uh, cats. Cats are more important than bugs. Um, yeah. And therefore, you know, we love monkeys, but we kill and eat cows. And it was sort of an investigation on how that screws up our idea of ecology and everything being as important as each other. Yeah. Um, and yeah. um, I just started writing and mm-hmm. just wrote loads of little scenes and then sort of went through it again and tried to find character um, and mm. found the six people who ultimately ended up being in the play Great. Um, and I actually did a um, development with Debbie Tucker Green on it she read it um, Vicky sort of match made us mm. um, and so I spent some time with Debbie talking what did you learn from Debbie? everything um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what did I learn from Debbie? Uh, loads sort of lots of you know, in some things I probably can't even articulate. I just mm. think she's incredible. Yeah. Um, in every way, sort of someone can be really. Yeah. <laughs> um, she's really extraordinary. Yeah, and the nicest, nicest woman I have ever met. Um, and so generous. Like, you know, here's little old me, you know, from the ass of nowhere in Scotland, meeting one of the most seminal playwrights of her generation. And she's treating me like I'm as important as she is. You know, that's humbling as fuck. Um, and she was so generous with her ideas and her thoughts mm. and and also I remember um, there was a moment where we were sort of reading through it and there was one scene that um, actually didn't make the final production but um, she, was like, uh, she was sort of looking through it and went so tell me, what, tell me what you're trying to do with this scene or what's happening and I was like uh, mm. I was sort of try, desperately trying to think of something clever to say <laughs> and then she went does it feel right and I went yeah and she was like that's enough and turned the page and we just went uh-huh. on to the next scene uh-huh. and I was like oh alright okay and I'd never forget them does it feel right and I went, yeah okay that's enough that's enough and like that that was so, I just remember that moment because it felt so empowering because she went your, your gut your instinct is yeah, good great. enough right now Dram- great. dramaturgy great great um I don't think she'll mind me. Hopefully she won't mind me sharing that. But, um, yeah, and we had the, I remember we had the meeting in Vicky's office because Vicky was out. And I just remember, I sort of saw myself from above, like having a meeting in like the artistic director's office at the Royal Court with Debbie Tucker Green <laughs> about my play that had just been programmed. And I went, whose fucking life is this? <laughs> like, it was so, I felt so, just ate humble pie for dinner for months after that. And absolutely just read, you know, rode the the wave of joy, yeah. and yeah. and it was such you know such a moment of privilege, um, and yeah, I'll never forget that moment of privilege, and also for sure, mm. but also a moment that you'd earned. Mm, I don't know if I feel by like making I good to... stuff like mm. it wasn't that wasn't an administrative error, right? I don't. Well, it's an easy thing for you to get your head around the idea. No, I st- I struggled for about. F- I still think. I struggled for about fifteen years to realise there wasn't another Simon Stevens, mm. and there actually was. He's running the NHS, but was another, he? <laughs> another Simon Stevens oh, yeah, who'd written much better plays mm. than me, and he should have been doing the stuff that I was doing. Yeah. 
it, I felt like as like an illustrative habit for years. Does yeah. it, did it did it still feel for you then? Yep, still does. Yeah, and I sort of hope it never stops feeling like that. I hope, like, it's a really tricky thing, and I particularly think when you're a woman and if yeah. you're queer, yeah. about acknowledging the things you deserve. Yeah. Um, and but also remaining humble with that, I think that's a really tricky line to walk. Of going, I I deserve this actually, yeah. but then also not being a dick with that. Yeah. But then also not denying the fact that you've worked really fucking hard for exactly. loads of years, and gone, you know, yeah. you're not an administrative error. And I yeah. don't have an answer to how you balance all those checks. And I think I will probably spend most of all of my career trying yeah. to balance those checks yeah. of feeling like I deserve to be in the room, but not then. You know, I hate arrogance. It's my least favourite yes. quality in a person. Yeah. Um, and I think um, it's all very tricky managing all of that. I think it's really, really tricky. I mm. think you're really right to identify the gender and the, the, the gender and the heteronormative politics that yeah. underpin it as well, and the racial politics and the class mm-hmm. politics. Absolutely. I think the notion of entitlement is really... is. You know, I've never in my living memory come across, for example a theatre that only produces men uh, plays by men or mm. a playwriting competition that's only for men mm. patriarchy doesn't work by explicit exclusion mm. it works by entitlement yeah and and for people to be to know that they're fucking entitled to write yeah <laughs> and they're yeah, entitled yeah. to be in the room yeah. but without coming across like an arrogant dick is in my experience, what it's replaced by is not a sense of belonging there, but it's a sense that you've had your day and you really ought to leave now. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> true, absolutely. Yeah. I've never had a moment where I go, ah, oh, thank you, yes, yeah, yeah, here I, I am. Made it. And I really, <laughs> just like, oh. mm. sorry, I'm derailed by it. No, no. But it's really, um, tell me about the experience of human animals being here. Uh, incredible. How was that? Yeah. Um, it was, so Hamish, <laughs> Hamish Perry, um, <laughs> So Emily's doing lots of laughing because yeah, she was Emily's involved in really the show. doing lots of laughing. Uh, <laughs> What's that about? Um, there was a lot of things in human animals, um, and it was with Hamish Perry, who's an mm. incredible human, one of my favourites, mm. um, and again, one of the kindest people yeah. you'd ever meet. Yeah. Um, and uh, the like, so uh, making human animals was incredible. I loved it. Um, I got to. I've never lived in London, and so I sort of got to live in London for two months while mm. we made it, and it was on. Mm. Um, that's sort of personal side, but that no, was it. That was yeah. a real kick for me. Yeah. Um, also, you know, it's important to say that as a playwright, you don't have to live in London. There are other places. <laughs> yeah. Increasingly, the most important playwrights aren't necessarily mm. living in London at all. Yeah. Sorry. No, no. Um, yeah. Um, no, but I think that is something worth talking about. Yeah. Um, but. Um, yeah, it was a glorious thing making human animals. Mm. Uh, Ham- Hamish is such a visionary and so generous with it. He's a real giddy mix of like grown up and kid, um, <laughs> and genius, I think. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we had a really lovely, special time making that play. And was this a theatre that meant something to you before you came here? Was it? A, was this a theatre that existed in your imagination before? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely, I remember. Um, on opening night of Human Animals in the downstairs loo, um, the the one that's on the same level, sorry, is box office opposite the yeah. lift. Yeah. Um, before you go to theatre upstairs. Um, before we opened, I locked myself in there and had a cry, and not a, like a sad cry, but sort of like an overwhelming cry that yeah. all like 
you know, I would say 90% of my favourite ever plays opened at the theatre upstairs and I was just about to open my play up there. <laughs> and I just felt, again, it was, I just felt so humbled and like a, this, you know, this doesn't happen to people like me, these sort of experiences. And also I am privileged in lots of different ways. Um, I should acknowledge that as well as a white middle class woman, sure. you know. Um, but I still couldn't quite believe it was happening to me. Yeah. Um, and I still like sometimes if I come to a press night and I'm sure I shouldn't do this it's probably against health and safety but I'll <laughs> sneak into the theatre when no one else is in it <laughs> and yeah. Emily's caught me and in fact allowed me she's enabled yeah. me to do it yes. um, because there's something about the ghosts of this building and I mean like good ghosts yeah. that um, I love and to be part of that history is sort of still boggles my mind. It feels like it's diff happening to a different Steph Smith. It's not the same Steph Smith who's, you know, lives in a flat in Glasgow and, you know, <laughs> looks, lives with her two cats and really <laughs> likes, I don't know, watching crap telly. <laughs> I don't actually watch crap telly. I don't know why I said that. Um, but, but um, uh, yeah, it, I still get a chill walking. When I get off the tube at Sloan Square, I still have a moment of going, holy fuck, I can't believe this is my life. Where do you write? Uh, I have a desk at home um, and I also rent a, I'm part of an artistic collective in Glasgow um, and so I sort of hot desk in a space in the south side of Glasgow. And what's on your desk at home? What do you write on? Um, I write on my laptop. Yeah. Um, on my desk at home there's a typewriter from the 1950s. Why? Um, because a friend gave it to me and I think it's a really beautiful object. And I like that it reminds me that writing can be a tactile task mm. as much as a intellectual one. Yeah. Do you ever write by hand? Sometimes. Yeah. I write notes by hand. Um, cool. It's really beautiful hearing you talk about every element of your working life has been great. Mm. And you're so thoughtful and you're so articulate. Oh, I'm really good. fascinated by the relationship in your work between heart and brain. Oh, yeah. That going back to that. Thing that Debbie observed, mm. and you're not bit of. I can imagine for once you're not being able to articulate <laughs> yeah. the justification of a scene. Mm. Do you feel yourself an intellectual writer, or do you feel yourself writing from your guts? What, what, that's a stupid question. I regret asking, but I no. really want to hear your answer. Um, guts. Yeah. yeah. I my f first drafts are like getting blood from blue tack. I hate them, <laughs> um, and I. Uh, and they're all instinct. I don't sit and um, chart out a play. I don't sort of do the graphs and whatnot that other playwrights use and, and love. Yeah. I just have to get it out because I would say 90% of my plays come from a feeling that I can't articulate. And the playwriting is the action of trying to articulate that feeling. I'm trying to give the feeling a shape. Mm. Beautiful. And then the redrafting process is absolutely where my head comes in so it's not just they're not just splurges that I then send away yeah. I sort of have this emotional splurge or this sort of sensory splurge yes. and then my crap playwriting craft and all yeah. that learning that I've done from seeing plays reading plays yeah. going to workshops yeah. comes in in the redrafting yeah uh, I love the those uh, three adjectives that you use on your website mm. and I kind of want to talk about we talked a little bit about feminism, but mm. we've not talked about Scottishness, really. Mm, yeah. Uh, yeah, I have a funny relationship with Scottishness, because both yeah. my parents are English. Um, right. Although my mum's side of the family um, is, is Scottish. 
but um my yeah my mum's from Yorkshire my dad's from uh, Nottingham um and uh, it's not even sexy England um, no. <laughs> I'm joking I love those two countries please don't please don't troll me on Twitter um <laughs> what's sexy England Oh, I don't know London. I don't know there's no such thing as there. No, I'm joking. Really. Please cut this out, Emily. Less and less sexy <laughs> all the time. I'm definitely going to ask for this to be edited out. <laughs> no, it's good. We're not going to let you. Not going to let you. Right. But the Scot- so going back to the Scottishness, right? Yeah, than... and so, and because I have this accent, which is quite light, um, yeah. you know, it's sort of, um, but it's also not sort of Highlands, it's sort of miscellaneous Scottish mm. accent. Um, and so I never sort of felt Scottish enough to be Scottish and I never felt English enough to be English. Um, and I just really feel like in the past few years I'm sort of claiming my Scottishness. Yeah. Since yeah. probably Indie Ref, actually. Right. I sort of went... And, and since moved, you know, I lived in Leeds for a few years and now I'm back living in Glasgow. Yeah. Um, what which did it I, feel like to return? Oh, I loved it. I mean, I, I sort of moved back, unfortunately, under slightly sad circumstances. But um, I... As soon as I got back, I felt like I was home. Yeah. I love Glasgow. I love I love Glasgow. I love the part I live in the East End, which is a very specific part in um, of Glasgow, and that feels like home. And the feminism, I, the mm. way you talk about your feminism and your queer identity, seems so fundamental to to you as an artist and as as a person. Mm. That second choice. Uh, uh, is the action of your what is the act is the action of your plays to persuade or what's the political gesture that underpins those plays can you kind of play be feminist or is it just an artist or a human being feminist i think a play can be feminist yeah. for sure yeah um i think my plays always start with a central question right and it's usually one i can't answer great and so the, a play is a gesture towards the answer brilliant um, and I'm not saying that my plays are the answers to any question, no. but for example, with Swallow, one of the central questions was how does female anger manifest itself, yeah. different from, say, male anger? Um, and I don't think I answered that, but that was mm. the sort of pro- one of the provocations at the heart of that play. Um, and I think with something like Enough, which is the play that was just on at the Traverse, yeah. um, I wanted to talk at a sort of slightly... L- uh, I wanted to talk about the Me Too movement in a way that never referenced it, but about what it means when something seismic happens uh, that makes you question your place in the world and every interaction you've had because of your gender. And I remember when Me Too first kicked off. I mean, I lost weeks of it just to sort of... I just walked around in a blur going, I can't, like, something seismic is happening here. Yeah. We're having conversations we've never had. Yeah. Um, people are reflecting, people are coming out and talking about things. Yeah. Um, and also, there's, you know, there's still people who I know who haven't been outed and frankly deserve to be outed, yeah. but it's not, that's not my story. And I'm very right. lucky to have, I have nothing, I have no personal experience that connects with um, the Me Too movement. Mm. Um, and I just, I just remember meeting with my female friends and all of us, it was like we felt the ground was shaking and we didn't know how to talk about it, we didn't know how to, um, we didn't know what to do with that feeling and the play um, Enough sort of deals with um, tremors that are happening below the earth 
that only these two women can feel um, mm. and there's sort of there's an image within that spoiler alert if you're gonna read or see enough but um the sort of final image of that play is um you realize that the tremors are coming from women digging themselves up from the earth um and it sort of ends with this image of these two women standing in front of lots of other women being held by them um and uh yeah that's about as feminist as it gets (laughs) and also it's about female friendship yeah which we don't see enough on stage I, I've got. I could talk to you all day, which is I always do this, and I always kind of say that it's like the line that everybody's going to always always fucking says that. But it's, you're genuinely compelling talking to you. But um, I I I really want to talk about Nora because uh-huh. it's one of the very rare opportunities where this is probably going to be going out just before you reopen yeah. or go into rehearsal. Yeah. Um, how was that to kind of like take a claw hammer to the mind of Henry Gibson. Yeah, well, I, I love A Doll's House. I should, yeah. you know, I think everyone assumes if you like do a radical interpretation, you must hate the original, but yeah. I love A Doll's yeah. House. It's the second play I read in my undergrad. Yeah. And I remember thinking, oh my God, plays can change the world um, when I read it, mm. um, which was a naive thought, but there's, you know, there's truth in that, of course. I don't, I think, I don't think it's that naive, actually. Oh, I, think really? it, I, think, I think people... People who think of it as naive have a naive understanding of what changing the world means. Mm. Yeah, cool. I think it. I think art changes the world necessarily. We just mm. need to decide how we're going to change it. Mm. And it's not massive revolutions, but it's it's seismic increments. Yeah, I think. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's yeah. really interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, what does change look like? And also, change can is also much slower than we like For it and sure. want it to be. For sure. Um, Sorry, know, I interrupted you. <laughs> no, it's fine. That's also a really interesting conversation. Um, and uh, I w- walked around with this concept for years about it's, so it's three Noras set in three different time periods. Yeah. One in 1918 when women got the vote. One in 1968, which is the same year abortion became legal and the pill became available to all women. Mm. And 2018 in the sort of the aftermath of Me Too. And it's uh, three Noras are also of three different classes. Mm. Um, navigating the same set of circumstances which were set up by Ibsen in the original but yeah. also dealing with sl- also slightly different money sort of money issues at the heart of it so for example in 1968 was also um, the year after credit cards became right. available but wow. women were although women were legally allowed to own a credit card most banks wouldn't sign off to women because we weren't to be trusted with money um, so they still had to get their husbands and fathers to sign off credit cards. Wow. Um, and then the modern day Nora um, is entrapped by payday loans and about right. paying back interest and it spirals. Um, and as it's sort of, I mean, I remember, and I also, I sort of also should say that I thought I would never get to write it because people don't tend to look towards youngish women for adaptations. Yeah. They look towards men yeah I know yeah done a few have you Simon done a few well you've done a dog's house as well um, but um, yeah no it's true and so I it's really so, problematic yeah really, and yeah. I sort of assumed I would never get to do it and then mm. Dominic um, who's artistic director of the sets mm. uh, again sat me down and you know I'm also aware that there's a there's an there's privilege these conversations that I get to have um, and he just said, what would you like to write? And I s- told him the idea. Mm. Um, and this is years ago I told him this idea. And it yeah. was the same time that NTS were doing Zinni's version right. again. And so he was like, I'm sorry, you know, there's, 
yeah. people aren't going to want to see two dolls houses yeah. that close in, in proximity and then mm. years later he emailed me and um asked to go for coffee and i was like oh okay you know mm. we, we hadn't really you know i've obviously seen him about but we hadn't really engaged mm. since then and he um said i've never been able to forget your doll's house idea shall we do it oh and i said yes please <laughs> <laughs> um and it was great elizabeth freestone directed yeah. who i think is incredible yeah. generous human talented um compassionate director mm. and yeah. i can't wait to uh, yeah, I'm glad it's coming here. And f the final, the final kind of like word on your website, which we should be our final word, um, our final kind of question, is restless. Mm. And I identify the restlessness in your instinct to work on things like the magnificent Wender Song Project, mm. or um, the, the 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 love letter to Europe in yeah. Edinburgh. Um, do you feel yourself still restless, and what are you restless for? Um, yep, I think restlessness is just a fundamental character in my bones. Um, I hope I never lose my restlessness. Yeah. Um, I think if you're too restless, it's a bad thing. But there's sort of again, yeah. there's like an, there's a nice midpoint. Yeah, you gotta sit down eventually. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, a rest. I think restlessness, a hunger, however you want to frame it, for uh, better, and I mean that in the biggest sense of the word um i would like the world to be better i.e greater equality and yeah. um, i want to see um i was gonna say i want to see better theater but i want to see theater that provokes me and attempts to be more representative of the world we live in yeah. um i would would like to be a better playwright whatever that means <laughs> i sort of really regret saying this word better already no. yeah, you, but you <laughs> um i mean that in like the broadest yeah. sense yeah. um and so i think my restlessness comes from the pursuit of better brilliant it's so inspiring hearing you talk hmm. real really 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 nice to see you again oh you too Steps thanks for having thank me you very much indeed <laughs> So we do the, we do this thing. I don't know if you have you heard Anushka's facts and questions no. at the end of these podcasts. So, no. <laughs> so Anushka, Anush notes. Is that what you call them? Yeah, Anush notes. Is that what I call them that for? I'm fucking old now. I'm <laughs> the three of us collectively. Yeah. All right. Cool. Very good. So she's going to ask you better questions than me. Okay. <laughs> and and probably find out some great facts. What's weird is I've written a new note that I don't understand. So what the hell am I ever? What makes a Hamlet? Let's just ignore that. I no, no. What makes a Hamlet, Hamlet is what defines a Hamlet, which is the the, the collection the, the of houses. Yeah. Oh, oh yes. do you know yeah. what? <clears throat> Okay, this is something different. Oh no, I wish I hadn't said that out loud. I was like, why have I written about Hamlet? He's spoken about enough. Um, what I realised is, when you said about Hamlet, it had 20 houses. Yeah. In my play, I actually wrote as a fact that a Hamlet was like 10 houses or less. So I was like, no, you need to go and read dreams. Oh, so that should have been in a noosh noosh note. Yeah, can't um, edit that. Take that off. Um, although, do you know from a fact that Hamlet is that thing else? No. Right. Oh, you might be wrong. You might need to go and check. Yeah. I'll put that on a niche death here. note. <laughs> um, you know when you said about um, writing in your head, how does that actually work practically if people want to try this writing in your head stuff? Oh, um... 
You, you asked me if I wrote some, if I wrote, oh, wrote physically wrote things down yeah. every day. I suppose um, sometimes a line on the play will stay with me, or like I'll hear a line and it'll just sort of haunt me for a while. There's no... You remember it. So you yeah. don't feel, if, if I have thoughts about life, I feel the need to immediately write them down somewhere, but yeah. you don't need to, no. you just let it carry on. In yeah, if I write it down sometimes it kills it. Um, you know when you worked in Lush, mm. did they give um, employees a way, did you put stuff up your nose so you didn't have to smell it? It's so strong in Lush. <laughs> no, the first shift I did, I got, I had like a killer headache and after that you're just immune. Ah, <laughs> I've always wondered every time I've walked past And it. everything you own smells of Lush. Which is great. Yeah. But it's so strong. It is so strong. In York, the Lush is in Coney Street, which is right by the river. Yeah. And when the river floods, Lush floods and it smells incredible <laughs> <laughs> because it just foams out the door. Great. That's yeah. so brilliant. Great. <laughs> uh, my last, my last question. Um, you mentioned about how you know you do think like a pop song could change the world, and then later you then actually said about how you felt the Doll's House did. Mm -hmm. So what would be the pop song that could change the world? That's already. Lot. I think there's a shit ton, but that's yeah. not the question for I mean, when I say change the world, I think when you think of it, you know, even, I mean, this, I don't know why she just popped in my head, I'm not particularly a fan, but Lady Gaga's early stuff, when she's dealing with lots of queer politics, yeah. or like representing different parts of humanity, I think that does more for LGBT rights than lots of pride marches. You know, it's. Yeah. And I think, you know, you look at the Supremes representation of yeah. black women, yeah. Yeah. like, I think. Swift just had a song come out by Roman, and it's so cheesy and pop, and it just makes me really angry. Oh, yes, there we yeah. go. That's yeah. the best yeah. answer ever. Yeah. Don't well, there are hundreds. I think that's how pop music's worked. Yeah. No, I know. My question was, what, what was the one? Yeah. Yeah. Lemonade's the most recent. <laughs> oh, yeah. No. Oh, oh, God. Oh, she yeah. might not. Oh, no, hold on, hold on. This yeah. can be Say called yes. Emily's Extras. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> notes and Are you recording this? Yeah. yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, a lot of people forward wind through the whole interview no. to get to Noosh's notes. Yeah, <laughs> oh. Steph has a Carol Churchill tattoo. Oh, oh that is quite cool. Hold yeah. on. You've got to guess what the quote is. The water no. laps around your ankles in any case. Not the last oh. line of fire away. <laughs> 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 and it kind of is almost if it was, if talking it, about your anger as If well. it's a yeah. party, why was there so much blood? Incredible rage, incredible rage, incredible rage. I got a t-shirt for my wife. Saying terrible rage. No, ter terrible rage, terrible rage, terrible rage, terrible rage, terrible rage. Yeah. Is that your tattoo? Yeah. Oh, yeah! yeah. <laughs> right and wrong. That's so cool. This That's doesn't great. really work on radio. Fucking brilliant. This is this is great. And it has, you can maybe give it a picture of it. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, um, we can put so it on the we, we yeah. have been able to mention both Carol and Debbie in this podcast. That makes me very happy. Does that not I mean surely that happens all the fucking time. But yeah, but we our, our mission is to get them on every no. season. Every no. season. They're too cool. Yeah. They're yeah. Fucking cool losers for like me. <laughs> <laughs> no. yeah. Thanks, Thank Steph. you very much, Dad. 
Thanks very much for listening to the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights podcast. If you'd like to listen to more, make sure you subscribe at royalcourttheatre.com or iTunes to get the next episode. You can purchase many of the plays discussed here via the bookshop, come in at Sloan Square, or on the website. Come to the theatre, come and have a look at the plays, come and have a look at the plays in the new season. The Playwrights podcast is brought to you by the Royal Court Theatre, presented by me, Simon Stevens, and produced by Anushka Warden and Emily Legg.